somewhere between waking and sleeping. On our journey towards the unfathomable deep, there comes a thin moment when we have one foot in the waking world and the other is in that other world where we relinquish conscious control. Pausing here and straddled between two planets that drive one another like gears, the attentive traveller will notice a narrow door, only wide enough to sidle through. This is the border of sleep where imagination and reality are braided together, a chasm in the crust of consciousness venting the hot pumice of imagery into the irresistible magma of narrative. Welcome to episode 20 of Stories from the Borders of Sleep, a weekly podcast of curious tales from bordersofsleep.com, featuring original stories by your host Seymour Jacklin. Visit bordersofsleep.com for more information or to leave some feedback. Artwork is by Robin Trainer, production by Tim Wiles, and the soundtrack for this week's episode is from The Depths of a Year by Erin Starks and Finding Sanctuary by Anthony Salvo, and they are both available from magnatune.com. This podcast is also available on iTunes. So, if you are ready to journey with me, then I shall begin. Bear Bridge by Seymour Jacklin. On my way home from school, I would always stop to see my grandmother. My own mother had told me that she appreciated the company. In hindsight, I recognised that it was an equitable arrangement as it gave my mother an extended respite from the ceaseless questions of a six-year-old boy, and it gave me the opportunity to eat warm currant buns and to talk to someone who always had time to answer my insistent queries. How do grapes get turned into currants, Granny? Well, if you leave them out in the sun, they shrivel up into currants, dear. How do grapes get turned into wine, Granny? Well, if you squash them and let them rot, then the juice becomes wine. I did try making wine once, and my rotting bowl of grapes grew green fur. Granny? Yes, dear? Why is the Bear Bridge called the Bear Bridge? The so-called Bear Bridge lay on the track that ran down the side of the church and over the river to the water meadows and the pine forest beyond. Granny handed me a mug of hot black currant squash and poured herself a cup of tea. I was resting my chin on my folded hands on the tablecloth in my customary pose as Granny never objected to me putting my elbows up on the table. She leant forward so her head was level with mine and said that it had everything to do with why the place we lived was called Bakerton. Why? I asked. My grandmother pushed her cup to one side as if to clear the space between us and she began... This village was not always called Bakerton. In fact, it was called Bearham, and it came to be called Bakerton after a certain heroic baker saved it from an awful thing that happened. What happened? I asked. We had trouble with bears, she said. As I recall her telling this story, it always seems as if she told it as if she was rarely there at the time, so I'm sure I'm faithfully reporting what she said when she said we had trouble with bears. 
They came out from the woods on the other side of the water meadows, she continued. Who knows why? Perhaps they'd decided to give up hunting for food and decided to rob and pillage wayfarers instead, for these bears were more fierce than any highwayman. They didn't have the manners of Dick Turpin or the looks of swift Nick Neverson. They didn't even have the cunning of galloping Dick Ferguson or the breeding of William Plunkett. Just brutes they were. And they hung about that bridge we call Bear Bridge, down there, attacking the good folk of this village. Some they dragged off, and those were never seen again. Others escaped with their lives, but lost a limb. And those who survived without harm said that it was sometimes possible to distract the bears and make a run for it, and this was the only chance. So for several months those bears held the upper hand, and the villagers would go nowhere near Bear Bridge. Fields laid untilled, trees uncut and meadows unmowed beyond the river. But at the turn of the year, with the shortening days, it became urgent that the villagers get to the forest in safety to collect their winter supplies of wood, and there was a great deal of anxiety abroad. Little huddles of people could be heard discussing the bears on every corner. Now, there was one man for whom the problem had become more urgent in recent days. The poor baker was down to his last batch of flour and he knew that he must cross the river to visit the miller if he was to keep his customers from going without bread. By an unfortunate dint of history was the mill on the wrong side of the bridge, perhaps because in former times a miller was treated with fear and ostracised from society since the grinding of flour was considered to be a black art, a secretly guarded by generations of millers as it was held in suspicion by common folk. So, the baker poured out his last measure of flour and mixed a fresh dough with a little water and salt and some leftover dough from his last batch that held the yeast wherein lay the magic of his own carefully guarded skill. And leaving it to prove, he set out towards Bear Bridge, hoping against hope that he might be able to outwit the bears and bring enough flour back to last him well. He had no plan in his mind, but considered that, just as when one is mixing dough, one must alter the recipe a little every time according to the atmospheric conditions, the age of the flour, and the virility of the yeasts, he would improvise and rely upon his cunning. As he crept down to the bridge, he kept under cover of the long grass and the reeds, keeping as low as he could until he could get a clear view and see if there were any bears in his path. There. To his horror, lying on the bridge were two of the largest bears he had ever imagined, blocking the way with their mountainous bodies, side by side, facing the village and snoring monstrously. Their heads were rested on their paws and claws as long and as sharp as a rack of carving knives, and they snorted in their sleep, their grisly flues quivered revealing their savage teeth. The baker took hold of a mossy log about as big as a rolling pin. It would have to serve him as a weapon if they awoke. As he pondered what to do, an idea came to him, and he moved quickly, knowing that if he stopped to think for too long he might think better of it or miss the moment. From his hiding place in the reeds, he lifted the log over his head and flung it as far as he could up the river. 
it landed with a loud splash, and in an instant both the bears awoke and reared up, blocking out the sun with their shadows and looking wildly up the river to see what the noise was. One of them growled and hunched back onto all fours, turning and loping back down the bridge and along the bank to see what it was, and the other followed him. This was the baker's moment. He scrambled onto the bridge and began to run with all his might. Thump, 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 his feet pounded the bridge as loud in his ears as his own heartbeat. The second bear turned around and saw him and began to canter towards him, but he put his head down and watched his feet, urging them to go as fast as possible. As he gained the other side of the bridge, he saw a huge shadow coming from the right and felt a tearing pain between his shoulders as the bear's claws ripped the shirt from his back. Instinctively, he skipped to one side and redoubled his speed with a sudden burst of terror. He didn't look back, but ran on, uncertain if he was being pursued or not, yet not permitting himself to slow down or look behind him for an instant that might cost him his life. He did not stop, until he came to the door of the mill and hammered it with his big kneading fists until the miller opened it and he fell inside, staggering across the threshold. The miller slammed the door behind him, "'Are they following you?' he asked. "'I don't know,' gasped the baker, and sat down upon a sack of flour to get his breath back. It was then he noticed that his neck felt wet, and he lifted his hand to wipe it. It wasn't sweat, it was blood. "'Let me have a look at you,' said the miller, laying a hand upon his shoulder and peering down his back. "'You have a nasty gash there.' I'd thank you not to bleed on my flour, but go into the kitchen and my wife will give you water and a towel and find you another shirt. Sorry, uh, thank you, panted the baker and looked gratefully at the miller. It would be easy to believe the things that were said about millers. This one had deep-set and secretive dark eyes in his pudgy face, and a hooked nose that looked as if it had been borrowed from a bird of prey. On his cheeks were a few untamed wisps of a beard that seemed to want to grow anywhere but on his chin. Nevertheless, he was smiling, and his manner was warm and jovial. The baker got cleaned up and changed while the miller loaded a couple of sacks of flour and tied them together so that they could be saddled over the shoulder and carried easily. "'How much do I owe you?' asked the baker. "'Well, uh, I'm awfully fond of current buns.' so you may pay me in kind if you wish. I should be grateful to have from you two baker's dozen of your best currant buns before the week is out, and we'll call it square, said the miller. And because you're now in my debt and I have a vested interest in your safe return, let me give you something to help you on your way. And he handed the baker a long shank of bone with a few dried scabs of meat still clinging to it. Give this to the bears and they will let you pass, he said. The baker thanked him and apologised again. He didn't know quite why, and then thanked him again and and thanked him and apologised several more times before he set out again to return home. As he approached the bridge, he saw that the same two bears were there again, regarding him with malevolent disdain and waiting for him to come within striking range. As calm as a basking otter, the baker stepped onto the bridge and held out the bone in front of him. The two bears bore down on him and knocked him off his feet, and the weight of the two sacks of flour on his neck pinned him down. The bears were snarling. 
the baker closed his eyes and waited for the kill, but it never came. When he dared to open them, he saw the two bears fighting over the bone. He got to his feet as quickly as he could and ran again, a little slower and heavier than he had run before, but with no less effort, he ran until he reached the church, stopping by the lich gate to catch his breath. Well, the baker made 26 buns the very next day, with cinnamon from India and raisins from Italy, and not being one to keep long accounts, he placed them neatly in a tray and hoisted them on his head taking care to stop by the butchers and beg for the largest and juiciest bone he could provide. This would be the shank of a sure-footed sheep, said the butcher, handing it to him. As before, he walked to the bridge, even daring to whistle tunelessly to himself. But on this day, there were not two, but six bears, drawn up in a crescent formation like a Saracen patrol, ready to close around him. Feeling a little more frightened but daring not to show it, the baker advanced across the bridge, proffering the bone in front of him and balancing the tray of buns on his head. To his surprise, the bears ignored the bone, but the lead brute swiped the tray of buns, tipping all 26 of them out onto the planks of the bridge, and they rolled about and the bears went after them, Two even followed a single bun into the river with a splash that woke the startled baker from his fear. The bears were cramming the buns into their mouths. The baker ran again and did not stop until he came to the mill. The miller was surprised to see the baker again so soon and carrying not two baker's dozen of currant buns but a slightly pungent sheep shank. I see you're in better shape than before, but you do not need to repay me for the bone, but for the flour, he said. Alas, those bears have got the better of me once again, said the baker. They've stolen the buns, every one of them. The miller scratched his strangely bare chin, which was a habit he had that possibly was the cause of no hair growing there. I won't get my current buns unless we solve the bear problem, he declared and, still scratching his chin, he sat down upon a sack of flour that gave off a puff of white under his weight. "'What shall we do?' asked the baker. "'I have an idea,' replied the miller. "'Give me that shank and come with me.' The miller took the bone and led the baker to the grinding room, where one great millstone sat upon another under a complex wooden contraption of beams and wheels. I will grind you some very special flour, said the miller, throwing a lever which set the upper stone in motion against the lower one, and another which sent a cascade of golden grain into their jaws. As the baker watched, the miller fed the bone in between the millstones, so that it was ground together with the flour. While the flour was spilling out into a waiting sack, the miller left and returned with an old leather book which he studied carefully for a few minutes, after which he looked up, and seeing that the sack was full, he turned off the mill and tied off the top of the sack. Now, repeat after me, said the miller, reading from the book. <coughs> said the miller. <coughs> said the baker. 
the baker managed to get a glimpse of the faded cover of the book, and there, stamped in red letters, were the words, Teach yourself bear. Again, said the miller. Said the baker. Have you got that? said the miller. repeated the baker. Good, said the miller. Now this is what you must do. Take this flower, and when you go back over the bridge, you must repeat that to the bears exactly as I have told you. You are promising to return with another tray of buns for them the following day. You must then go home and bake a batch of 26 currant buns using only this special flour. Tomorrow, come again, bringing the buns with you, and when you reach the bridge, throw the buns down, and all will be well. So the baker did just as the miller had instructed. He set off home. As soon as he was in calling distance of the bridge, he raised his voice. He said. The bears stood back and let him pass, sniffing him greedily as he went between them. He noticed that his tray was torn up and lying in pieces on the bridge. The next day, he got up early and stoked up his ovens, taking cinnamon from Ceylon and raisins from Morocco and only using the special sack of flour, he baked a batch of 26 raisin buns, placed them neatly in a tray and set off one last time for the bear bridge. When he got to the bridge, the bears came out to meet him. There were too many to count, such was the mass of fur and teeth. As he had been told to, the baker pretended to trip, and the tray flew off his head, scattering the buns, but this time, as soon as the buns hit the ground, they suddenly sprouted legs, sure-footed legs, four to a bun, and began to run ahead across the bridge like a tiny flock of miniature sheep. The bears gave chase, but the buns stayed ahead and dashed along the track towards the forest. The last that anyone saw of those bears, they were chasing the buns. And for all I know, they could be chasing them still, said my grandmother, and took a sip from her cold cup of tea. And ever since then, this village has been called Bakerton, in honour of the baker. Would you like a currant bun, darling? she asked. Why don't they call the village Millerton? I asked. Oh no, she said. That would never do.